0: Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter three for the second week of Advent message titled "An Eternal Plan." recall I said last week there would be no second coming if there wasn 't a first coming, and there would be there would have been no crucifixion, no resurrection, no atonement if it wasn 't for the birth of Jesus, there would be no resurrection if there wasn 't a birth prior to that. I was talking to the uh, little Bill this past week, I actually put this on social media a couple days ago, and I was talking about, now I want to make sure that you're going to be a good boy when you get older, right? I want to make sure, and we're talking about, and he was so matter of fact, he was so serious, he goes, well, Daddy, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be bad, I'm not going to get in trouble, I go to church, and then he goes, and my dad's a pastor, I think I got a couple PKs in the room right now. Yes, we got a couple representing uh, right here. Uh, My goal is just for my kid not to go crazy. If I do that, I think I'll have accomplished something. But in all seriousness, when we look at God's love for us, we're about to look at the chapter in the Bible typically associated with the fall of humanity, Genesis chapter 3. I want you just to picture just from even our vantage point, if we created some beautiful household for not just our kids but for anybody for anybody we we literally roll out the red carpet in this nice beautiful creation that we have given them and instantaneously they trash it how would we feel about that or let's say you marry someone you love deeply and that person doesn't get the seven-year itch. They get the seven-second itch, and literally the ink's not even dried, and they're already unfaithful. How would anybody feel about that? It would wound us, right? What we see in Scripture is that it did not take very long at all for humanity, who God had given the task of caring for His creation, caring for His Beautiful garden to already be led astray because of their desire to rebel. And keep in mind, we didn't, we don't have at this point this doctrine of inherent sin nature that we're all kind of born into. We have a picture of humanity here, a picture of creation, picture of humanity that did not have that initial bent. But here comes the serpent slithering his way in and now leading humanity astray. Now, when we look at Genesis 3, and we're going to read the whole chapter, and I'm going to have a little bit of a shorter message today because we want to make make sure that we have time for our kids in just a bit. But keep in mind that Scripture at times is going to be using literary devices, symbolic devices, but yet to make very literal points. It's possible, but I don't believe that Satan truly was a, you know, initially just a snake just riding around. But the serpent in ancient Near East literature was a personification of evil. If you look at ancient Near Eastern literature, the serpent was considered to be that most wretched symbol that you could use for evil. And if there's any question about who the serpent is in Genesis chapter 3, when you go over to the book of Revelation, which is also filled, it's apocalyptic literature, a little bit different, but it talks about that old foe, that the old ancient serpent. So we see Satan's rise in Genesis 3, he's cursed, and we get another picture of his fall in the book of Genesis. But read along with me, if you will, Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to kind of read through this uh, a little bit quick. "'For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open, "'and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. "'When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food "'and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, "'she took some and ate it. "'She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. "'Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized, "'and they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together "'and made coverings for themselves.' Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you were in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains and childbearing, and you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Though painful, through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since it is from where you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, we thank you for your word. May you teach us today, speak to us, challenge us, encourage us. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Now, as I read Genesis 3, the number one thing I want you to do is First, pay attention to the theology. Don't begin asking 20th, 21st century questions that the text wasn't intending to address first and foremost. This is a theological discourse about humanity and the sinful bent that rises from the rebellion of man and woman. The theme of our message today, we can put that on the screen, is that the first coming is part of an eternal plan that we do not deserve, but are a part of anyway. The first coming is part of an eternal plan that we do not deserve, but are a part of anyway. What do I mean by that, the first coming? We're talking about the birth of Jesus, which takes place long after these, uh, uh, this book was written and these events are taking place here. But I had mentioned recently, when we can talk about God's fairness, and people say to themselves, well, if God was really fair... Why isn't life this way? If God was really fair, why isn't my life this way? And I submit to you that if God was really fair, none of us would have hope. Not a single person here deserves the grace of God. Not a single person here deserves eternal life. All of us are sinners in need of a Savior. All of us have all kinds of dirt on our hands, skeletons in our closet, things that we are ashamed of, flaws and foibles, things that would embarrass us before other people, that would embarrass us to stand before God. God knows all. Keep in mind, again, literary devices that are used in this passage. Scripture says elsewhere, God is spirit. Was He really walking around not knowing where Adam and Eve were? Is that what was going on, or do we have a literary device here about sinful humanity trying to shield themselves from God? Do you think that ever works? Do you think that we can ever run from God, and He doesn't know what's going on in our lives? But yet God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. And one of the greatest gifts that we didn't deserve, the greatest gift, was the person of Jesus Christ, who literally came in the flesh, lived among us, died among us, and rose again. And we have a first prophetic picture all the way in Genesis 3 with the eternal plan of God, that though God was fully cognizant and aware that human beings We're going to choose a rebellious path, a sinful path. Provisions had been made in the form and person of Jesus. The first point I'm going to make very briefly is the first coming occurred even though God knew a rebellion. And don't think He didn't know before creation itself. Now, He knew before creation, He knew in the garden. God is omniscient, meaning that He is all-knowing. He's all-powerful, everywhere present, so on and so forth. But I've heard this question. And it's not a, necessarily a bad question. Well, if God knew in advance all of the death, destruction, warfare, disease, and so on and so on and so forth, why did He create, period? Why did He create? And here's the best analogy that I can use for you. Many of you in here have had children, or I believe at some point all of you have been children at some point, correct? Yes, okay, all right. There's a few of us that have at some point grown up. Maybe when you were younger and doe-eyed and going into marriage, perhaps you thought the marriage was going to be perfect without any flaws at all, just like mine with my wife, right? Oh, I was serious. It's been very good, I feel like. Or maybe you thought That raising children was going to be perfect and flawless, and they were never going to talk back to you, right? They were always going to appreciate everything that you were going to do for them. They were never going to talk back. In fact, when you said those famous words, no, from the time that they were little babies and infants, they were going to go, ah, they were going to say, okay, mom and dad. Thank you for your maturity and wisdom. I appreciate the fact that you go to work every day to give me a good life. And when you tell me no, I know it's for my own good. And I'm going to accept that because I'm going to maturely respect your wisdom, right? Is that how it went? I don't think it went that way for any of us. And you don't know until you actually walk through it. You might know conceptually that raising children... It's going to at times be challenging, but would you trade it for anything? Knowing that you can bring them into a world where it can be difficult, knowing that you're going to bring them into a world that is not perfect, knowing you're going to bring them in a world where sorry some parents here. You can't protect them from every little harm that might come upon them. When they learn to ride a bike, they're probably going to fall here and there. Though we try our best to lead them on a good path, there are going to be times where apparently that they are going to have to learn the hard way, right? And we know that bringing people in the world All of us at points experience sadness, broken hearts, disappointments. And we would love to shield our children from all of that. But we can't. But yet we still chose to bring life into the world anyway. Why? Because that life is precious. And that life is good. And though we live in a fallen world, there is still many blessings that are in this world that was created by God and is in a process of restoration ever since the time of Jesus, ever since the time of the cross, where what we see in Genesis 3 is the rupturing of the relationship between God and man. There's a rupturing. And what we see with the cross is a reconciliation. We're going from rupturing to reconciliation for all those who believe are being reconciled to God. And that the very world that we live in, though it is subject to natural disasters and chaos and other things beyond our control, this is not the last chapter. This is not the final word. Though Jesus came once, He's coming again, Scripture says. And we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where what we see here, again, is a symbolic picture of God and humanity dwelling together without any rupturing, without any uh, factioning. And the whole thrust of Scripture leading up to the very end of Revelation, the new Jerusalem, new heaven and new earth, is a restoration of those conditions. In fact, even better, dwelling directly with Christ. So, yes, God knew that humanity was going to screw up. Now, couldn't He have just made us where we didn't screw up? Yeah, He could have. Well, that would have been a better world. Well, number one, I'm not God, neither are you. But number two, if Everything was just pre-programmed and sanitized to keep us away from every little harm or every little evil. And we didn't have the ability to choose and make decisions to do great good or even tremendous evil. Personhood, personality, freedom, none of that would exist. Everything would just be a giant mirage. And Scripture never promises as us anywhere that life was going to just be some giant walk in the park. But if you were created or reality existed without the ability to choose, without the ability to be human, life would just be one giant mirage. Instead, God creates us with personality. God creates us with the ability to to choose. And with that can come great good or great evil. But this is the way that God created, gave us a choice. People chose, not God. God gave people the ability to choose. People have chosen rebellion. God has chosen reconciliation. People have chosen destruction. God has chosen grace. Point number two, the first coming occurred in part because of us and in spite of us. The first coming occurred in part because of us and in spite of us. I say that, I've worded this a little carefully because it's more than just me. Uh, The first coming is cosmic and overtones, but yes, humanity are central to that. And you look at the rebellion of humanity here, and look at the picture that we have, and look at the chain of blame game that we see. We have an account here. Well, first, before I do that, how many of us really enjoy eating crow and admitting that we're wrong? Ever. Have you ever met somebody, and magically, they've never been wrong about anything ever? Have you ever met somebody like that? That's incredible. They've never been wrong about anything. So What what happens here? God approaches Adam, and what does he say? Well, it wasn't me. It's the woman that you gave me. It's it's the woman's fault, her her fault. I didn't do it. God says, well, what about? no, No, it was the serpent's fault. Don't blame me. Everybody trying to pass the buck. The first coming occurred in part because of humanity's rebellion. And this is a picture here of people always and throughout the ages. People always have acted like this. They still act like this, and they're always going to act like this apart from Christ. Stupid. Let's just be blunt. Arrogant. Just like we have to learn the hard way at times where you tell your kids, Don't stick your hand inside of the oven. Don't stick your hand inside of the flames. What do they do? Well, I want to see if it's really hot after all. Sometimes people decide that they know, your children, you know this, your children have decided at various intervals, maybe mom and dad are dumb. Maybe I know better than them. I know they told me this, but my buddy over here said everything's going to be fine. My buddy's way, me and Lori were at a, a, a Christmas party event Uh, was it yesterday? We were at it yesterday. And I I was just shocked, not shocked, he was so much more interested in pressing some third graders than mom and dad. The opinion of those third graders mattered way more to him than our opinion. But in any event, our children at times will say to themselves, I am going to go it alone here. I'm going to do it my way. And lo and behold, mom and dad turned out to be right after all. It's funny how that works out. And God gives an instruction here to his children, and they're like, nope, we're still going to do it our way. And it didn't work out. And then what do they try to do? They try to pass the blame, pass the buck. And yes, Satan is trying to work his deception and was effective at it. And that'll preach for a long time how people will. Listen to the voice of the enemy rather than listen to the voice of that he who loves them. But why did the first coming occur in part? Well, because God doesn't give up on his children. Your children have let you down at some points, but you didn't let up on them. You don't give up on them. Take that and times that by infinity. That is God's love for us. That should say, number uh, letter C there, because of his love for his children. That's my bad, not theirs. He doesn't give up on his children because of his love for his children. Think of the patience that we have for others in general versus the patience that God has for us. If you hired somebody to do a job and they were habitually screwing up on the job day after day after day, you probably lose lose patience with that employee and want to get rid of them. Even with our kids, you say, well, there's nothing I love more than my kids. No, even with your kids, you would have a breaking point whether you know it or not. But God does not give up. He pursues His children. For those whose hearts would be moved and quickened by the Holy Spirit who would respond to His grace. And a key thing that we see here in this passage. Why did the first coming also occur? Well, let's go to the third point here. To crush the head of Satan. What do I mean by that? Well, look here at what may well just be the earliest prophecy that we have in Scripture. Again, this is literary devices being used here. He says, well, he says that, uh, to the serpent, Cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours. Between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So if you want to read this overly wooden, literalistically, well, this is actually about a snake. And snakes, they, they can come up on people's heels and people will step on snakes. Is that what this is about? No, this is about something a lot bigger and grander than that. And it might not have made sense to the discerning eye until much longer to the time we get to the life of Christ where, again, Satan is working his deception in the masses who then are screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And the people collude with the Romans. Natural enemies, religious people, and the Romans colluding together to take out a common enemy, Christ. So they put him on trial, a fake trial, trumped up charges, put him to death. And at that point, Satan probably thinks that he won. And Satan's not stupid, though. He knows Scripture. He tried to use Scripture against Christ himself. You see that in the book of Matthew. He's smart. But deceptive. And perhaps he thought he could get away with this, or he wanted to just do as much as he could before the inevitable. But in any event, you have Christ who breathes his last breath on the cross and gives up his life. At that point, the disciples who are scared and many of them running think this could be it. It's over. He's gone. He's dead. They put him in a tomb and they guard it with soldiers. But on the third day, Jesus rose again. And even before that, while He was on the cross, one of the reasons we call Good Friday good, even though it's filled with what leads up to Good Friday, is the death of an innocent person. Jesus breathes His last breath and says, it is finished. What is finished? He gives His life on the cross for you and for me and all who will believe, taking upon Himself the sins of the entire world. And in doing so, defeats death, hell, sin, Satan, and the grave. What happened on the cross? And then what ultimately occurs at the second coming is what? The serpent's head is crushed. Death is defeated. Hell is defeated. What do they do on the cross? They literally swipe his side, they, bru- they, they battered him a little bit, they struck his heel but he crushed the serpent's head, and Jesus rose again. All that took place in the life of Christ during the first coming. started with little gentle Jesus, born in humble conditions, and his first coming ends by crushing the serpent's head, resurrection from the grave, ascending to the Most High. So in conclusion of this message, the first coming is God's love and victory for His people. That is also what Advent is about, is this eternal plan of God. And wrapped up in that eternal plan of God is His love for you and for me that we do not deserve. His grace, His victory, in spite of all that which we don't deserve, He gives us what we do deserve.